Hello and welcome to Schoolhouse Equity and Education. I am your host, Allison R. Brown, Executive Director of the Communities for Just Schools Fund, or CJSF, where we provide resources and support to community-based organizations that are working to ensure equity in their schools. Go to cjsfund.org to subscribe to our e-newsletter. If you're tweeting, follow me at Allison R. Brown and tweet about the show with the hashtags C4JS or Communities for Just Schools, both of those with the number four. Today on Schoolhouse, I am really thrilled to be welcoming members of the Dignity in Schools campaign. The Dignity in Schools campaign is a national coalition of more than 100 organizations that promotes alternatives to a culture of zero tolerance, punishment, criminalization, and the dismantling of public schools. DSC fights for the human right of every young person to a quality education and to be treated with dignity. I'm thrilled to welcome to the show Eddie Flores, who is with the Youth Justice Coalition in Los Angeles, California, Marlene Tillman with Gwinnett Stop in Gwinnett County, Georgia, and Jessica Black with the Black Organizing Project in Oakland, California. Welcome to all three of you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Let me start with you, Jessica. Tell me about the Dignity in Schools campaign. What is it and why is Black Organizing Project involved? The Dignity in Schools campaign is really a campaign that focuses on dismantling the school-to-prison pipeline. And the reason why BOP is involved is because that's a major part of our work as well. We're working to eliminate police from schools here in Oakland. And Eddie... DSC has been involved in school-to-prison pipeline work for many, many years and recently took up the issue very publicly of police in schools. Will you talk about how DSC has done that and what that looks like? So right now, one of the things that we're doing is counselors, not cops. So we're trying to go ahead and eliminate the regular presence of law enforcement inside schools. And we have our own recommendations to go ahead and remove SROs and probation officers, parole officers, ICE officers, to remove them out of schools and as well to any security guards that are armed to remove them from schools. So we have three different main recommendations that we are going ahead and pushing acting in schools. One of the other uh, recommendations that we have is that uh, we want to go ahead and create a safe space for young people so towards uh, having an alternative of having law enforcement and be able to go ahead and reduce the role inside schools. Eddie, why is it important to you all to remove school police officers? And we've had conversations on this podcast about the role of school resource officers and other law enforcement officers in school buildings and and how devastating they can be when they interact with young people and particularly young people of color in schools. But talk about why that's a priority for the Dignity in Schools campaign. Because a lot of young people that are inside schools don't really have the the resources to go ahead and get the higher education. They're always being pulled out consistently out of classes. Their so-called random searches are happening to them. When we directly know that, you know, they're being targeted and we already know which young people going ahead and being targeted are the main ones that are young people of color and it's predominantly young men that are being uh, targeted as well too. So we want to go ahead and remove them so we can go ahead and redirect the funding from law enforcement to more education to actually, that's why we say counselors, not cops, because we actually have very few amount of counselors inside schools 
they have over 500 students, you know, to go ahead and attend. It's very difficult for a counselor to actually, you know, to be able to see, you know, the students consistently and pay attention to them and to keep up with them. While, you know, we have five SROs competing against two counselors and, you know, the young people actually see the law enforcement more than they see counselors. Mm-hmm. And so towards, you know, we're trying to go ahead and remove law enforcement from the whole presence of schools. And as well, too, going ahead and removing their weapons as well, too. We have this thing called the 1033. They want to take out all the American weapons from law enforcement because uh, we don't need any weapons inside schools because those weapons are not going to go ahead and be used against our young people. And that's the thing that we don't want them to use them against uh, the students inside schools, especially towards, you know, of all the uh, shootings that have been happening with law enforcement. The 1033 program, just to clarify, is a federal program that puts leftover or extra federal military equipment into the hands of local police departments, including school police departments, so that police departments like yours, school police departments like the one in L.A., end up with equipment that really belongs on the the battlefield. So equipment like rocket launchers and grenade launchers and the like that are not necessary to police uh, or protect school buildings. The Youth Justice Coalition and the Dignity in Schools campaign, both of you have been very active in pushing back against that 1033 program. Am I right about that? So, Marlene, you know, the policy recommendations that have come out of the Dignity in Schools campaign are very timely in that they followed the release of guidance that came from the Department of Justice, Federal Department of Justice and uh, U.S. Department of Education about the presence of school resource officers in schools and how schools should be utilizing or relying on the presence of school resource officers. Marlene, what do you think about that federal package that came out, and how has that influenced the way that Gwinnett Stop goes about its work? I'm glad you used a different word in the end of package because I found no guidance in what they released. Guidance is usually to help you do better, and I I saw nothing in what they released to help you do better. They took the position that if we put officer-friendly in the school and using a failed triad model of policing in school that doesn't work in the community, and now they want to use it on the school, and somehow it works, and we're going to have an officer-friendly, is a flawed theory at best. It was very disappointing to not have Ed come out on a stronger stance. The Department of Education. Yes, the Mm -hmm. Department of Ed. Come out on a stronger stance and say, no police in schools. We're the education people. We're the child development people. We know that that harms students. That should not be existing in our schools. Yet they came out with the position that a local decision And yes, that's true. It is a local decision whether to have police in your schools, but how students are disciplined as well is a local decision. And it did not stop them from putting out guidance around student civil rights within that process. And so for me and for um, Gwinnett Stop, seeing that the Department of Ed is not supporting for us, our, their mission, and also in upholding legal rights for students and not outlining what those were, 
being clear with systems that, okay, it's a local decision, but you can't do X, Y, and Z, you will be violating students' rights. Um, We will be watching you. We will accept complaints. They took a very strong stance Mm -hmm. with the school discipline guidance package release, and I'm happy to call that guidance. Mm -hmm. The package of materials (laughs) that they released actually sounded like it came from um, two different neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. (laughs) two different voices. There was no real connection. What we see it does is kind of push back on all of our work, okay? So we've been fighting on the ground very hard for getting police out, diminishing their role initially, and then getting them out the door. And this has been going on across the country, and here comes Department of Justice saying, well, you just need Officer Friendly. He'll make you feel better, and he'll be friends with your student. While he's violating their due process rights in this dual hat role, questioning students and doing investigations, mm-hmm. and they're not protected. So I saw it as disappointing mm-hmm. coming from folks who should know better. And I guess I shouldn't have expected anything different from the cops office or from Department of Justice, given what they're doing so far as the community policing that's going on which is nothing. So we're talking right now about the Department of Justice, Department of Education guidance package around school resource officers that came out just in the past few weeks. And you mentioned Marlin and compared it to the school discipline guidance package that came out in 2014. By the same two departments. By the Department of Justice and Department of Education. Right. That was very comprehensive and actually was in response to many of the investigations that they had opened and were in the midst of many of the conversations that they were having with that they being the Department of Justice and Department of Education were having with community about the impacts of exclusionary school disciplines, you know, suspensions, expulsions from school, law enforcement referrals and the like. They were hearing things from community, they were investigating and collecting evidence, and they were litigating cases and and investigating cases for the possibility of withholding federal funding. And so it was in the midst of that that they developed that joint guidance, and it reflected the clear need that they had seen in school districts to be explicit about what was prohibited under the federal civil rights laws. Absolutely. And I think it reflected many communities' values. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was developed in in partnership with communities and with a lot of input and feedback from community. And this guidance, it happened far, I think, a bit more quickly. And it was, it It is recent. I want to play devil's advocate here. Okay. And Jessica, I'm going to ask you to respond. We hear absolutely the point that is part of the policy recommendations from the Dignity in Schools campaign. And we hear organizers and advocates that say police have no place in school. I've been one of those people. But let me push back a bit and say, well, you know, we've reached a tipping point, right? We've got to the point where there are police in schools and there are some police that are doing good things And this is guidance and we really need, you know, that kind of conversation about how we can support their healthy interaction with young people in schools and the clear understanding that they should not be part of the discipline process. What do you say to that argument, Jessica? So from Bob's perspective, again, it's no police in schools. 
specifically to that argument, when you think about school and school is supposed to be a place that is safe for children, the symbolism of police in the school is almost like cognitive dissonance, right? So police currently in our community are killing our kids, black and brown children specifically. And so to have to go to school and have to have an interaction with a police officer that is like in full uniform, fully armed with weapons, is not safe. And it sends the wrong message. It sends messages to the kids that they're criminals, that they need to be policed. It doesn't perpetuate any real positivity. Like what happened to kind of like you can self-discipline, you you have the ability to self-correct, right? Or let's sit down and, and have a conversation or let's explore this. Maybe maybe this conversation can be an opportunity that we can help you to build skills. Like there's no positivity in having police officers monitor children. The psychology, the methodology behind it is is sick. And Eddie, so the policy recommendations, there are three parts, right? So one is just to end the presence of police in schools. Of law enforcement, yeah. Right, of law enforcement. So police officers, school resource officers, and other connected officers. So truancy officers and parole officers and the like. Remove them from school altogether. And then create safe schools using positive means, right? So positive behavior, reinforcement, um, and the like. And then the third piece is when you do call police into schools and law enforcement, make sure that there are a set of measures that school personnel is aware of in the way that they govern themselves with police officers. So that when you have to call police for some criminal activity that has taken place in and around the school, that there are clear measures for the ways in which police officers are engaging with young people in the school building. Will you talk, Eddie, just a about the what are the safe schools piece with you know the positive climate and culture what are some best practices what are things that schools should be aware of that actually work to ensure healthy learning environments instead of having law enforcement in school to go ahead and practice safety and safe school is uh, having peace builders slash intervention workers that will go ahead and work with young people because a peace builder is someone that has been system impacted Someone that's been inside the system, either the juvenile halls, camps, probation, uh, prison, uh, as well county jail. Someone that has been through the struggle, um, that's been inside the neighborhood, that's either a former gang affiliated with the neighborhood. And so towards where now they want to go ahead and the peace builders and they're trying to go ahead and help young people to redirect their life in a positive form of a way. So towards where... If a young person comes to a peace builder and tells them, look, uh, I have an issue, I'm going ahead and I feel like I want to relapse, uh, I feel like either I want to do, I want to drink or I want to do drugs, you know, uh, a peace builder will actually understand the struggle of a young person, what he's going through, because he either went through it or she went through that, because he's talking to someone that understands them and he's safe with that person. While a young person goes and approaches law enforcement about that issue, law enforcement is going to go ahead and straight arrest the young person because it's so-called, you know, it's illegal to go ahead and do this stuff. Or even though they're trying to go ahead and either give them the help they need when they're going to take them to a rehabilitative place, you know, when they're not really going to get any help. But what the peace builder will do is actually find them the resources and the help they need. They are inside the community and utilize different tools that will go ahead and help out a young person 
as well too, to go ahead and practice transformative and restorative justice circles with them. And so to our staff, they go ahead and, and see a conflict with young people. They'll know how to do restorative and transformative justice circle. Restorative justice is when two young people got into a fight. They were two best friends. And so towards where they bring them together and they sit them down and they go ahead and they make them um, get to towards down what's the root of the cause and towards they can restore back the relationship and they come down with set agreements for the next following steps are we going to do with this? How are we going to go ahead and prevent this from happening again? And so towards where that's a restorative justice circle right there because you're restoring the relationship they had with the young person. With the restorative justice, it goes ahead and gives opportunity to have each person inside the room to be heard. So towards where no one speaks above no one else. Everyone is inside the space, inside the circle. And it has the same amount of time, the same stature of speaking. No one speaks above another person. So no one is higher than no one else. Everyone is equal. And then uh, that leads on with the transformative justice circle. Well, transformative justice circle is a little bit more different. It's what towards with two young people. They never had a relationship, for example, whether from two neighborhood gangs, either Crip or Blood, and they both went ahead and they fought in school. They never had a relationship, so there's nothing there to restore. Mm. So what a transformative justice circle does, it transforms the relationship that goes ahead and actually gets to build a relationship with one, one another and makes both uh, groups accountable for what they did towards either from going ahead and killing uh, former friends because of the neighborhood drama. Mm-hmm. It gives kind of ability and towards where they understand, okay, you might have shed some blood, I shed some blood, but let's come together and it's built off of this. And so towards where it runs through the same process of what a restorative justice does. It goes ahead and it brings in a facilitator as well to bring the two young people in with their supporters. They get down to the root of the cause and towards do they need any help with programming? Do they need any help with counseling? What resources can we offer them to these two young people? and go ahead and so towards they will be both safe and they will both be transformed with the new relationship and they'll go ahead and be able to work with one another as well too. Um, we do follow up with, with restorative and transformative justice. We go ahead and we do follow up meetings with them. So we, we see where the first week is at mm-hmm. and we see what's the second week, how they are. And then the third week, we'll see how they're doing. And so that goes up to four weeks. And to go ahead and see how are the young people going ahead and going with the process with the restorative and transformative justice. And then another one that we have is to go ahead and just having more counselors and more staff support inside the schools as well, too. So, towards, you know, anything can go ahead and get down to the rule of constant. No conflicts will go ahead and happen. And, you know, we won't go ahead and have a lot of young people misbehaving inside schools. Those are some of the how to, yeah. those are some of the ways that we can create, you know, safe schools. For young people. Mm-hmm. The other recommendation that we have is the third one mm-hmm. is to go ahead and, and, and have law enforcement in school, but their ability to inside school to be inside school. So towards where we understand that you know law enforcement will be inside schools, but we want to go ahead and not have them think that they're the counselors, not be like uh, Marlene said, but it's not to be officer friendly mm-hmm. in there as well too, because uh, there's many schools out there where um, there's no accidents that happen especially in predominantly neighborhoods that are African-American, Blacks, and Latinos, you don't really go ahead and you don't hear uh, a school getting shot up in a neighborhood. You know, you only hear that in white neighborhoods. Can I ask something? Sure. Go ahead, Jessica. The system, unfortunately, discredits, like, people who are really impacted by their actions. 
And so one of the big things that we are seeing at Bob is that people don't go into the community and ask community members what they would like to see. Um, and we did that. And come to find out, like, nobody really wanted police to be in schools. Police in our community equals pain. Mm. I think there's a historical context that gets missed around police, and they have a record of causing harm to communities of color. Mm-hmm. Also, these systems are not aligned culturally with the practices of people of color. So I think that when we think about like restorative justice and we think about the transformative justice and having police in schools, that it's really important to include the people who are most impacted by the police in those conversations, but also creating positions so that the people with the knowledge, who are the people in the neighborhood, are present and in the schools helping to work towards solutions to help the youth be able to develop social skills. Right. And police don't do that. Like the narrative behind policing is negative. It's just bad. And there's a lot of pain in the community that the police specifically has caused as we look at the current news today, but also historically. Marlene, the policy recommendations from DSC really are another effort by the Dignity in Schools campaign to codify much of what you all are talking about. So this is something that DSC does, right, is to try to put on paper and in policy the voices of community and the perspectives of young people that experience police in schools and and exclusionary discipline So, Marlon, how do the policy recommendations connect to, for example, the DSC model code of education and dignity that has been used by advocates in various places to push for legislation at the state and local level that will reduce and eliminate zero tolerance and disparities in school discipline? So the Dignity in Schools campaign model code is built on a human rights framework. So there is the right to dignity. There is the right to an education. And there is the right to be humanized, I mean, quite frankly. And so there are certain inalienable rights that you are afforded as just being human. And so our model code is based around that. And our release around the police recommendations, we do have a section on policing in schools that we developed then, and we've taken that work and expanded it out even further Again, including our member voices who are grassroots organizations on the ground with families, with students, with parents every day. So we know what we see that doesn't work, and we also have seen models that work. Uh, What Eddie outlines is a clear example of that. But our recommendations are wholly around the right for a child to exist in an environment in school that allows for their full educational attainment. We're talking about taking care of that social-emotional development as well as that academic learning. And so when you take those and both of those are fully engaging, fully caring about this person that's in your building, because these aren't little brains you're marching in or little bots. Mm -hmm. They are children Mm -hmm. that we have in there. So it is very important that we set up an environment. Our recommendations set up clear guidelines when police should be called. 
They should not exist in the building. They need to be called for the rare instances that police are needed. I believe it was Jessica who pointed out that the shootings that happen in schools are not at black and brown communities. They're in white communities, but all of the madness that plays out afterward plays out in our communities. So we get the brunt of those effects, and even though it's not happening in our schools. So we believe that you have to create safe schools through positive safety and discipline measures. So discipline should not be something that's wholly punitive. There has to be a restorative piece so that people aren't being judged by their last bad mistake, that they're allowed to come back into the community, repair the harm that they've done, and rejoin the community as a whole person. Because it's not just about those who were harmed, it's also about those who did the harm. Mm -hmm. And so our recommendations talk about that. Police should not be there with weapons. In my school system, the police have two automatic pistols and a taser. Mm. These are the same police who, when they transitioned from the street to our schools, the only type of training they've received around child development is that you can't taser a kid the same way you do an adult. And that is literally their child development training. So this whole officer-friendly notion, we dispel that within our recommendations. Mm -hmm. Officer-friendly is a misnomer. It does not exist. Police should be outside of the school building on those rare occasions that a police officer may be needed. Last I checked, they have radios and phones, and they can be contacted, and they and they drive. <laughs> so I think they can be called and, and come over. Yes. They are accessible when needed. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. They don't have to hop a bus. They can drive over. <laughs> so I'm not understanding how it took us all of five minutes to drop a police force into a building, and yet it's taking us years of pushback to try to get them out. And so one of the things that has to happen in those positive approaches for school climate and discipline Mm -hmm. is trauma-informed practices, Um, child and adolescent development and psychologies. Our school staff is not getting enough of that. And when they get it, it's on the front end of when they're learning to be a teacher and rarely is that repeated again through their teaching career. Mm -hmm. Conflict resolution, when you actually give youth the power and the knowledge to start mediating their own conflicts and have the language and the know-how to do that, they will take ownership of that information and make it their own and start to do that. We've watched that happen in many communities across the country who have implemented restorative practices in allowing conflict resolution, peer mediation, for the students to start utilizing that themselves. And so we promote parent and youth leadership roles within the schools to help them understand what our families want and what they need in order for their students to be successful. What are the next steps for these policy recommendations? And just to reiterate, they are in three different buckets. One is in the regular presence of law enforcement in schools, and law enforcement has been very broadly defined to include all types of police, school resource officers, security officers, and other personnel. 
The second is to create safe schools through positive safety and discipline measures that schools are employing counselors and peace builders and restorative justice coordinators and others, and really building a safe learning environment for young people. And then the third is to restrict the role of law enforcement that are called into schools so that police who come into school buildings when they are called are not permitted to just question young people without the presence of their parents or school officials or lawyers or observe questioning of young people or arrest young people for offenses that have taken place outside of the school building. So Marlene, what's next for these policy recommendations? So as we stated earlier, these were developed by our members. And so our next step is to help our members take ownership of this release and implement these policies in their own communities. And so specifically how they do it and what that's going to look like is going to be determined by, you know, the local community. However, we will be there to offer technical support and assistance in helping them begin a campaign or continue their campaign in removing the regular police presence from schools. And Jessica, as a member of the Dignity in Schools campaign, the Black Organizing Project, what do you all have planned moving forward? Well, moving forward, we actually have won policies within OUSD. We actually have won three policies. So we have won a policy that limits the role of police, and we have an MOU with Oakland Police Department on that, and we also have a board policy with Oakland School Police Department. We also were able to put together a complaint process policy because there was no process for people to complain when their children had negative interactions with Oakland Police Department or Oakland Unified School District Police Department. In Oakland, we have three different departments policing our children. So we have the Oakland Police Department, Mm -hmm. we have the Oakland School Police Department, and then we also have SROs, the school resource officers policing them. And so our next step is we're really trying to push to eliminate police. We've gotten so much pushback that we've had to try to chip away at it by just limiting the role. Mm -hmm. And so now we are working on the implementation of those policies. Because the reality is that even though MOUs are in place, policies are in place, if we stop watching the process, they tend to just push back into business as usual. And what we see is that it's going to take communities to win and transform this current system. Mm -hmm. What we've done is involved our members at every level in holding the system accountable. So in these policies that we won, Some of the through lines that we have is that there's systems of accountability inside of these policies. They all require reporting, oversight, and transparency, and none of that existed before Bob did the work that we did in reference to getting the policies passed with some of our partners. Mm -hmm. And so our next step is holding them accountable to that. We are currently in the school monitoring and asking for that information. We also are looking at the school budget. We were able to get them to invest $2.3 million into the sort of justice practices, but currently the budget is still $7.2 million for police. Hmm. And so we have more police in our schools than we do counselors, and we're trying to change that whole narrative. Mm -hmm. And so it's just 
staying on top of them, watching it, holding them accountable. One of the things that Bob did in this instance is we also created a Bay Area DSC chapter so that we could come together with our local allies who are also doing some of the work around the school to prison pipeline to try to make sure that at all levels, we're all on the ground and we're all pushing the narrative of no police in schools. And if I could jump in here with um, piggybacking on what Jessica said, I think it's very important that we all are pushing because that collective, as we chip away, at this district just dropped it. We've gotten the 1033 weapons out of this one. It creates <laughs> the momentum that we need to show that this does not work and we need it out of our communities. So I think it's very important that we have these on-the-ground campaigns that are working and being successful in getting the ball down the field. Jessica, I appreciate that you mentioned narrative because so much of this is about the story and the mindset and the perception that people experience about communities of color and young people of color. And so we we like to close the show with a story or two that will help to really shape mindsets, shape perceptions. And so, Eddie, I wonder if you would talk a bit or share a story that inspired the Youth Justice Coalition to really be involved in the Dignity in Schools campaign policy recommendations that are truly groundbreaking. For myself, for me, coming from LAUSD, going ahead and being inside the school system, I've been suspended from third grade all the way on to my freshman year. Mm-hmm. I've been suspended multiple times. Um, I've even been expelled from two high schools. And so I would tend to a way like there was never any resources. There was never no safety in the schools. When I came to Philly High, it's when I was able to go ahead and seek a peace builder and the support that I needed for my community and the people that actually understood what the stuff that I was going through at the moment of my life. And so towards where that's why we went ahead and we um, joined in the schools campaign so we can go ahead and stop the school to prison pipeline on a local and national level. Marlene, how can people join DSC? If you go on our, our website, you can contact us through that. Our campaign coordinator, you can reach out to them or our field organizer. So that would be either Natalie Chap. And then the field organizer is Fernando Martinez. Either one of them are happy to sign you up with Dignity in Schools. You do have to agree to our principles, and we hope that anyone who comes can absolutely agree and take hold of the human rights framework and the work that we do which maintains our dignity in all of the the policy recommendations and the work that we do in pushing through campaigns that give young people a positive school climate and help them to reach their full academic attainment. We can be reached at www.dignityinschools.org. And that's schools plural, correct? Um, it is dignityinschoolsplural.org. Okay. And we have a lot of resources on our website. You can download our model code. We have an interactive site around our counselors, not cops, the release of 
our recommendations on school police or ending the regular presence of law enforcement in school. We have many of our members have developed tools as well. They are on our website. It's just a very rich resource guide on the many aspects of school discipline, school climate and just really holding the dignity of our our students. Thank you all for joining us on Schoolhouse today. Jessica Black is with the Black Organizing Project in Oakland, California. Marlene Tillman is with Gwinnett Stop in Gwinnett County, Georgia. Eddie Flores is with the Youth Justice Coalition in Los Angeles, California. They are all members of the Dignity in Schools campaign, which just released a set of policy recommendations called Counselors, Not Cops, in Schools. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks to everyone for listening in. Remember that you can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and sign up for the Communities for Just Schools Fund newsletter at cjsfund.org. Have a wonderful week.